0: Welcome back to Stack Trace, your weekly podcast about Apple news, rumors, technology, programming, and many other things. With me, John Sundell, and my good friend, Mister Guy Rambo. How's it going, Mister Rambo? I'm doing great, John. How are you? I'm doing great as well. I am continuing to enjoy the summer. I've been taking more and more time off, uh, like we've talked about. It. I don't want that to be my update every week that I've been <laughs> taking time off because I. It, it sounds like maybe I'm just you know having a very lazy summer over here. And I, I am having a more lazy summer than usual, actually. I'm, I'm taking more time off, but uh, I am taking kind of some time off in each week and then still doing some work as well because that's just the nature of running your own business and, and doing kind of freelancing and client work and you know, podcasts and things that I do is I usually don't take like three weeks off in a row. I don't think that would really work. I mean, it would be hard to plan that. So I prefer to just take some time off here and there, and still focus uh, on work also, at least some part of each week. So that's what I've been doing, taking some time off and still mainly focused on client work now uh, during the summer here. I'm, I'm having a bit of a client work summer, which I actually really, really enjoy.
1: Nice. And uh, any interesting
0: things to share about the client work? Of course. So I have now started to use some of the new Swift concurrency features in like proper production code, and that's a really important step for me when it comes to uh, writing more kind of elaborate articles and things like that about these new features. So so far, I've been covering them both as part of our WWDC website and also writing some tips and smaller articles about the features themselves. But you know, over time, I want to you know do the classic Swift by Sundell articles, which are more like you know more in depth and more focusing on the techniques and things you can use around the features. I'm not so much into just listing features, right? Like just yeah. like, here's 10 new features because like we've talked about on this podcast many times, it's, I really believe that the features are just tools and then what techniques that you can actually use those tools to implement and and what patterns you can implement, that's the interesting part. So that's what I want to focus on. But of course- that also requires me to have some hands-on experience with that. And that's what I've been uh, now doing over the, the past couple of weeks has been to finding good places to introduce the new Swift concurrency features. Just like how you talked about last week with some of your work, you're you're finding the good use cases for it. And that's really what, what I've been doing uh, regarding that. So that's been really great, like starting to find... You know, some good patterns that work in this new context with async await, you know, what? where does it make sense to introduce actors? Uh, where does it make sense to use structure concurrency, maybe introduce some async sequences and things like that? Uh, what parts of my combined code could perhaps be implemented using this new concurrency system instead versus what do I want to still remain as combine? It's been a lot of that kind of work, like, you know, figuring things out, but it's been a lot of fun. So is your, your client targeting iOS 15? That's quite rare. <laughs> yeah, so it's uh, this is for features that will only target iOS 15. Oh, uh, it's see. also for some new projects. It's also for some kind of prototypes as part of existing projects and, and things like that. So, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think it's, it's very useful as a Swift developer in general or, you know, any developer you are to, you know, even though you might not be able to just work on the latest operating systems always and, you know, always use the latest APIs but to try to find parts of your project, whether it's uh, just prototypes or or you know, features that will be under a feature flag that you could say this will only be for iOS 15 and above or when you're implementing some of the new system features, you might find a, a reason to use the new features then, but I think finding uh, those situations can be really, really helpful as you kind of naturally progress and learn these new features as to not make your code base fall too far kind of behind when it comes to how Apple moves their platform forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But as someone who's writing uh, a project that's targeting just the new OSS, I must say it feels so nice to not have to worry about (laughs) backwards compatibility, (laughs) uh, which I, I guess it's how some people at Apple feel sometimes because, yeah, they... Uh, mainly work uh, forward but of course people who are working on the frameworks must make sure that they don't break existing apps and things like that so that must be even harder but yeah for people who are writing apps at apple and things like that it must be so nice to not have to worry about uh, oh this has to work all the way back to ios 12 or something and yeah writing an app for the new OSs is challenging because you're You're uh, aiming at a moving target, uh, and and things change with every new beta, and then things break, but it's nice. I I like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I had that feeling uh, last year when I was working on a brand new project for iOS 14, and I could just use all the latest and greatest. It was so refreshing, especially since I usually, to, to your earlier point, I usually work on projects that need to support further back, and I can't use the latest and greatest, which is also fine. Like... That's why I really like being a freelancer because I get to work on so many different projects and like we talked about last week some of them involve adding features to existing code bases that have been around for a long time and then I can't of course use you know iOS 15 only things that wouldn't make sense yeah. but some projects you know there's an opportunity to 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 do that and also some projects are brand new apps right and that is also fun but also challenging in a different way so you know like we so often like to say it depends and In this case, it depends so much on what type of project are you actually working on.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I would say for most new projects, I would always try as much as possible to go for the latest, uh, because if you start out uh, a new project today and you want to support iOS 13 and later, you're starting out with a bunch of that, basically, already. Um, But of course, that doesn't work for every project. uh, So it will hugely depend on your target market and things like that. But yeah, needless to say, it's nice. Uh, And uh, yeah, what you mentioned, and, and, and that's something I say all the time as well, not targeting the latest and greatest doesn't mean you can't use the latest and greatest features where it makes sense. Uh, say your your project supports all the way back to iOS 12 or something, but you will have a widget, you might want to, for the widget, use the new stuff because that's code that's only going to run on the latest OSS. So I think there's a balance that you can have there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And another aspect of my client work that I wanted to talk a little bit about here is how I am working with test flight builds when it comes to sending test flight builds to clients. Because Mm. this is something I have been maybe struggling a little bit with over the past few years when I've been a freelancer, is, you know, when do I send test flight builds to clients? Like, when do I share some of the code that I've been writing with them? Given that, you know, if I'm working on a project where I am delivering just the app to the client, like, they just want me to take a whole responsibility over the project. They want me to just build something for them and send them some builds. I, of course, work also on other projects where I'm part of a team and I work with other developers and I send pull requests to them and then they make their own releases and all that kind of stuff. So it's not always the case, but some projects that I have, I am either the only developer or I'm working maybe with some other people, but I am responsible for delivering the kind of end result to the client. And the client is not really involved in the code itself which is not true for all my projects. Some some of my projects, the clients are also very uh, involved and and are programmers themselves, but that's not always always the case. So in that situation then, like when I am delivering the app to a client, um, at what frequency should you do that? Or what frequency do I do that? That's something that I've been going back and forth on a lot. And I've sort of settled for some of my projects with what I think is a really nice system. And I've been using this now for a couple of months and it's been working out really, really well. And that's to do weekly test light builds. So what I do now is that every Friday I make a build of that given project. So before I stop working for the week I make a test light build and I send that to the client and that's kind of the ending point for the week. Uh, it doesn't mean that we do like weekly sprints because we have in that in, in that particular project uh, it's uh, monthly sprints. So the sprints are monthly. We We bring in new t- tickets in the task management system every month. But the builds that I send are weekly. And that has been a really nice kind of balancing uh, way for me where I get to kind of work on different tasks throughout a given month. And some tasks might take more than a week to complete. Uh, and that's fine, but if every week I have that kind of delivery point where I can give them you know, the current state of the app, and it also acts as a really nice kind of just wrapping up point for me personally. I can wrap up the task for the week, and I typically also send them a couple of release notes, and that also gives me some chance to think about, like, what did I do this week? Because very often when you work on, especially like a monthly cadence with monthly sprints, or, or sometimes even more than that, You can sometimes lose a little bit track of your progress and it can feel like, you know, you maybe didn't make as much progress as you wanted to. But then when you have that weekly kind of just uh, delivery point and you get to sum up what you actually did, uh, for me, at least, it's very, very motivating. And it feels really feels very rapid and quick in a way that's very it's very satisfying and nice.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, there's also the client aspect, because if you're working for a client, they might want to see stuff happening. Uh, and of course, every client differs, and I tend to get clients who trust me and who are not going to be micromanaging me. If they do that, I'm going to fire them, basically. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I like uh, I like to, to do that as well, so that they can have a, a, a tangible thing to, to like see the results slowly building up of of what they they're paying you for, basically. So yeah, it's nice for for also for them to be able to see that things are happening. Uh, And it's been a bit of a challenge, like with the the little client work that I've been doing, because since it's it's an SDK, there is no like, final product that's very useful to the clients, like uh, in terms of me building the thing for them. But now that I'm working on the UI part of the SDK, I am uh, giving them access to, to a test flight that's basically like a prototype app where you can like see all of the components and interact with them, basically like a playground. Um, mm-hmm. But at least they can see what's going on. And also, also their designers can, can give feedback on, on things that way.
0: Yeah, that's super useful when you're working on more like a developer tool, is to have some kind of test application that you distribute both in the team and and in your situation to a client, uh, because it just gives you so much more information when everything is visual, it's more easy to kind of see the progress, but also see the end result and to, you know, everything kind of coming together in one place. I, I really like that approach, so... Yeah, I would. I would do the same thing. I currently don't don't work on any SDKs or anything like that as as client work. But if I would, I would also do something similar as you're doing.
1: And are you automating the distribution somehow, or are you just uh, clicking archive in Xcode?
0: Yes, I am, of course, using our good friends at Bitrise, which, you know, disclaimer, both a sponsor of this podcast and uh, been a longtime sponsor of Swift by Sundell. Uh, But I've been using them since before they were a sponsor, and they're not paying me to say this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But I use it for almost all of my projects these days, including uh, this one that I just talked about, where it's all automated in Bitrise. It uh, automatically, when I make a uh, push to a branch called release slash something. It will automatically make a release from that branch with the right build number and the right you know metadata, and then it's just a matter of actually you know releasing that to either the App Store or Test Lite.
1: Yeah. As a, a, a side conversation here, um, I want to talk a bit about branches because uh, I I have changed the way I deal with branches in my own uh, projects and. This means the ones I work on for myself. Uh, I probably wouldn't do the same if I was working with a team. But lately, what I've been doing is basically I have a branch for a given release. And that's basically it. So I, I basically, I never really merge things back to the main branch, necessarily. Uh, so like for AirBuddy right now, I have the v2.1. branch which is that version's branch and I have the v2.5 branch which are the versions that I've been working on and uh, of course I will merge the uh, 2.4.2 branch back into the 2.5 one when I'm done with it because it needs to be integrated back into the the other version Um, but yeah that's basically how how I do things and when I release a given version, say I release version 2.5 I'll then like create another branch for like 2.5.1 or 2.6 and and start working on there. So basically the the branches are the versions. I know that like the quote correct thing to do would be to have tags for releases instead of separate branches, but I'm just a single developer, so like if I'm going to do something super experimental, I will then pull another branch from the version branch to work on that experiment. And if it works, I'll then merge it into the version branch. But what do you think about that approach for a single developer? Do you think it makes
0: sense? So just to clarify, you don't have any form of main branch at all. Like uh, it's just a series of version branches.
1: Yeah, uh, it it existed back in the day, but eventually I pulled a version from the, the main branch and started branching, from version to version, basically.
0: Yeah, I think that could make a lot of sense. It's actually a really interesting workflow, because if you think about it, we're always iterating towards the next version, right? Yeah, exactly. And you always kind of know what that version will be. I mean, sometimes there might be some incident that you need to release like a hotfix, and then your version numbers might change. But you know what? You can just rename your branch then, right? Like it's not a big deal. Uh, It's a very interesting workflow. I have actually not really heard about anyone using something similar, so... Maybe you invented a new Git workflow <laughs> here now, Rambo, the, the Rambo flow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it sounds great. Uh, so the main reason why I still use the main branch while still using version branches for releases is because I, when I'm iterating, I, I use a separate Bitrice workflow for the main integration. So when I do the main integration, I run all the UI tests, the, the unit tests, and everything at integration time, so that I know that main always has like a green light for all my automatic tests and everything like that, and I have a bunch of other scripts that run uh, as part of that integration workflow. But then when I make a release, I still run some kind of Smaller subset of the test just to make sure I didn't, you know, forget to run them or something like this, even though this is all automated, but it's just an extra check. But then the release workflow is mostly just like uploading the uh, artifact, like doing an archive and uploading the artifact to uh, App Store Connect. So I have separate workflows for release and for main integration. And I guess I could, you know, set something different up where... uh, I could make some specific commit message or something to trigger the release workflow. But in my case, I think it makes more sense to have that main branch for the development workflow and then have that prefix release slash for the release workflow. And I guess, you know, similar to your comment there, I could also use tags if I wanted to. Uh, I, for me, it doesn't really matter. Like I, I think it might have some different implications when it comes to the Git metadata, whether you use a tag or a branch. Uh, of course, a branch probably takes up more space and so on, but you know, for me, it's it's kind of the same when I'm just working on this on my own.
1: Yeah, definitely. What I like about this is that there's no confusion to me about what I'm doing. So uh, the uh, 2.4.2 version that I mentioned, uh, it was uh, released to fix some, some stuff related to the new BitStudio Buds, which we'll talk about in, in my segment soon. Um and I had recently released 2.4.1, but I was already working for quite a while on 2.5, which has a bunch of stuff for macOS Monterey and shortcuts and, and lots of new features and things like that, so of course I couldn't release that with the fixes, so it was super easy to just go back to the 2.4.1 branch, pull a new branch called 2.4.2, do the fixes there, push the release, and then Uh, I can merge 2.4.2 back into 2.5 to incorporate those fixes. So yeah, I think that's that's why I like this workflow. Like I I don't have to be thinking about, oh, which branch is that feature in? Do I need to like uh, rebase something or create a new branch based on a tag? Like there's basically no chance for confusion there because the version is right there in the name of the branch and I can just look up what's the latest version that I released and pick up from there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think when we're comparing like this particular project that I'm working on and this workflow that you're describing, I think they're extremely similar. The only difference is that I still use a main branch, right? But I'm still doing exactly what you're describing there. Like When I'm making a new release, I'm basically branching off from main and then if I need to make any fixes for that release, I do that on the release branch, and then I merge the release branch. Once it's uh, released on the App Store, I merge that release branch back into main. So it's it's basically the same, but the only difference is that you're always working towards a version branch, where whether I am working towards main, until it's time to make it the first release candidate, which is at the point where I create the release branch.
1: Yeah, makes sense. And of course, this is only viable with a single developer maybe like if one or two developers are working because otherwise uh, it's gonna be complicated and and generate lots of conflicts so yeah I understand that this is a privilege of indie developers
0: (laughs) (laughs) but there there's even uh, really large teams that work with a similar workflow which is like they're continuously integrating into their main branch and then the challenge becomes but what if you have some feature you're working on which you you need to work on for like three months or something and you still want to be able to ship the app during those three months how do you exclude that feature from being released to the app store and that's when feature flags come in but now we're talking about a little bit more sophisticated infrastructure i mean it doesn't have to be you can implement feature flags just as a struct with some booleans in it right like it doesn't have to be so complicated but if you want to do it like you know the way the larger companies do that does involve a bit more infrastructure and especially when it comes to your testing and so on like when you have a lot of feature flags it can really complicate the overall state that the application is in so for some of my projects where i work with other people we instead work with feature branches which personally is not my favorite way of working because it involves a lot of rebasing, right? Mm -hmm. You have to always like take the main branch and rebase it into your branch and there's conflicts all the time and so on. Like it's not a very nice workflow, I don't think, but sometimes it's necessary. Like if the project doesn't have some kind of feature flag system or the client doesn't want to use a feature flag system, then using feature branches is really like the only viable option. And sometimes the work that I do is kind of separate from what the developers at the company do, right? So then it makes sense for me to work in my little feature branch land (laughs) until I'm ready to merge that in and kind of continuously get reviews on that branch um, from the developers as well, of course, to get that good feedback but to then kind of develop it in, in separate isolation. But it all depends on like what's the situation. But I would say my preferred workflow, if I could pick, is definitely one where I continuously integrate into main and optionally use feature flags if there's something I need to work on which isn't supposed to be released to the public.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: So Rambo, you hinted at uh, you've been working on integrating the Beats Studio Buds into AirBuddy. So tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I had already done some work on them. Uh, like I mentioned in the past with new uh, devices released by Apple or Beats, I usually have enough information and, and people who are willing to help me test where I can fairly confidently release uh, what I call like initial support for a given device. But I always get the hardware itself uh, and test myself in order to improve things. And with the Beat Studio Buds, it was a bit different because the this device is weird. <laughs> like they, <laughs> they Great d- Review. <laughs> yeah. They don't have the W1 or H1 chip, so they don't support the magic pairing protocol that all other AirPods and and uh, other supporting Beats devices use. So I could theoretically just ignore them in everybody and not support them because uh, the promise of everybody is for devices with the w1 or h1 chip but since this device is i suppose it's going to be fairly popular and it's a beats device i wanted to to support them as well and uh, so i did but it was a bit complicated and, and i only managed to to get it as I wanted it to be once I got the device uh, on, on hand and the hardware arrived uh, early last week and I was able to get the update out today as we record. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm happy about that. But yeah, the thing with the Beat Studio Buds is that they only behave as AirPods when they are in the pairing state. So when you have them in the charging case and you hold the button on the charging case. Then they behave like AirPods, and you can see the little pop-up on iOS and, and Pair, or through AirBuddy as well now. Um, but once you do that, they are no longer AirPods. They behave as any other like Bluetooth headset, basically. Uh, so that was the, the challenge. I basically... I basically had to add support for, quote, third-party headsets in AirBuddy, which I said I would never do. But this is a very special case because it's for the BitStudio Buds, which are technically Apple. But um, yeah, once you have them paired through that, you can then switch them between devices. Like, you don't have to re-pair every time you want to like switch between your iPhone and your Mac. You can just connect uh, to one or another. But that initial pairing works that way. And after that, they don't behave like AirPods anymore. So you don't get some of the features of AirBuddy. And you also don't get the same features on iOS. Like you can't just open the charging case and see the status window automatically. That's just not possible because they're not AirPods, basically.
0: So you've talked about in the past that the fact that you've modularized your code bases and AirBody also... In a way that lets you add new features and change these kind of fundamental systems uh, in a way that doesn't require like huge rewrites or you know big changes to the architecture or something like that. Uh, was that was that still the case for for this implementation? Could you add this kind of quote unquote third party support without you know really fundamentally changing things in the app?
1: Yeah, it was not very difficult because uh, and of course this builds upon uh, a lot of previous work, so uh, the it was difficult to get to this point, but I basically have a single device struct that represents devices, and it's the same one that's used for AirPods, uh, Magic Keyboard, Macs, iPads, iPhones. I basically have a single entity uh, and, and a single source of truth for that information, so as long as I can create one of these structs from somewhere, I can have it show up in the app and, and work. And of course, not all features are going to to work depending on, on what that struct is telling the app to do. Um, and in this case, I had to modify, like I have this little property list file that basically declares the devices supported by the app and declares what they support and what they don't support and, and what their characteristics are. And I had to like, add a a new entry to, like, a device entry there that says, basically, this does not support magic pairing, uh, so that the app knows what to do with that device. Uh, And more specifically in this case, instead of getting the device information from Bluetooth Low Energy using uh, Core Bluetooth, basically, I am getting it from I.O. Bluetooth, which is the Bluetooth Classic layer on, on Mac OS. So it's basically a completely different system that's providing the information for the BitStudio Buds. Uh, But since I have these abstractions in place, I I could pipe it through the
0: same pipeline, basically, and and it all, quote, just works. (laughs) Nice. That's a huge benefit of communicating between different parts of an application with a kind of standardized data model. Because one problem that I see in many code bases that I work with is you have these objects that are very domain-specific and they get passed around all of the code base, right? And you have, you know, it can range from, you know, you're using some specific database or some specific networking layer or some specific anything, right? And you're just passing this around to different view controllers or different views or different manager objects or controllers or what have you. And then it becomes really hard to make these kinds of changes. While if you have something which is a little bit kind of more abstract in a way like your device struct which is more a kind of a declaration of what a device supports right rather mm-hmm. than being having anything to do with the kind of resolving that information and then you could just resolve that information in a completely different way in this case but the way you communicate to the rest of the code base is still exactly the same because the rest of the code base doesn't have any awareness of you know how was this information retrieved was it retrieved from the new Bluetooth stack or the old one or through some other process, like for the rest of the code base, I assume that doesn't matter. They It, it just matters what's in this device struct.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, a device is a device is a device, right? It's like there, <laughs> right. <laughs> there's
0: no like, there's no mobile
1: device struct or Mac struct. It's all Exactly, device. yeah. Uh, and uh, I just counted here, it has about 30 properties, this struct. So it, it's quite dense. Uh, and you mentioned resolving, uh, and I actually have a protocol which is called Device Resolver, <laughs> and, and that's what it does. It, it gets uh, stuff from somewhere and spits
0: out a, a device. Um, so, yeah, you, you, you were right on there. Oh, awesome. (laughs) And that's a trade-off you made there, right? Where some people might look at that struct with 30 properties and say, oh, this is bad, you know, this needs to be split up, it needs to be, you know, introduce a couple of protocols here and introduce a couple of different abstractions here. But perhaps that's not needed, right? Because perhaps this uh, struct contains a lot of information, but maybe that information is required, right? And sometimes we can get a little bit like... um, theoretical when we look at these things and we can say you know oh the book tells me that you should never have more than 10 properties in your struct right yeah but pragmatically when you look at these things it might be the right choice to say have this be the single source of truth have all of the actual logic that generates the struct happen elsewhere so this struct doesn't become like you know five thousand lines of code for you know doing all sorts of device specific stuff but still can remain a completely device agnostic uh, representation that's fine then, as long as, you know, the the logic happens elsewhere, the struct can still have a fair amount of properties, and I personally think that's fine.
1: Yeah, and and, uh, there are trade-offs, like you mentioned, like, uh, this uh, struct has, like, a property for a charging case, which is another struct that represents the device's charging case, and of course a Mac doesn't have a charging case, at least not yet, Uh, so uh, (laughs) in that case it will just be nil, but that's not like getting in the way uh, in, in any way. Uh, and it also has a kind property, which is an enum. And uh, that's what tells the app, whether this is uh, a headset or a Mac or an iPhone and things like that. Um, but if I were to like do this all like protocol oriented and, and things like that, it would, it would just make things so much more complicated. Uh, unnecessarily in my opinion and this is also this struct is also codable which means that I have a lot of flexibility like I can s- store this and decode it in various formats and things like that and that's used throughout the app um, so yeah I think in my case this this was the best approach um, like uh, the, the other thing I could think about here would be inheritance but we all know that inheritance is the root of all evil so yeah
0: Yeah, and I think with either the uh, inheritance route or the protocol route, which would be kind of more object-oriented ways of thinking about this. I know that people who use protocol-oriented programming doesn't like to think that they're doing object-oriented programming, <laughs> but they are, <laughs> because, you know, a protocol might just be an interface, but it's at some point, you know, especially if you're composing protocols and things like that, you are kind of doing object-oriented programming, and there's nothing wrong with that. Like, it's just a pattern. Uh, but th- that uh, route has benefits, like, like you mentioned, but... In your case, I can guess without having to having done any kind of look at this code, uh, I can assume that that would have involved a lot of typecasting then, because yeah. in some part of the code base, you probably need to check, like, for example, do, does this device actually have a charging case? And if it does, I want to show this additional information. And then in your case now, it's an iflet. You just unwrap that optional, and if the charging case is not nil, then it has a charging case. And if it's nil, it doesn't. Yep. But if you would uh, then need to typecast instead and say, let me cast this to uh, charging case compatible or some other kind of protocol. I think that to your point, it would make the code more complex and not really for any benefit. And and we have to remember like optionals, as much as you know, I've talked about avoiding non-optional optionals, <laughs> which I definitely stand by. I think that if you have something that shouldn't be optional you shouldn't implement it as an optional if you, if you can avoid it. But if you have something that is truly optional in your app, like a charging case, it can be nil, it, it cannot be, use optionals. Like That's why they're there. That's that's what the tool is for.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and in my case, having that kind property, which is an enum, make, makes it super easy to filter. Like if a certain part of the app is only interested in, say, uh, headsets, which does happen, it can basically just filter on that. Property which is an enum, so it's super easy uh, and and a lot easier than doing a bunch of type casting. And of course, like when you get more towards like the the leaf nodes of of the app tree, uh, it it starts transforming things into more easy to use things for the UI, such as view models and and list items and things like that, which become more separated from this device struct. So I, I treat this struct as like a blob of data about a device that will then be interpreted in order to turn it into results uh, in in the UI. So it's not like I am actually like using this as the input for like a a view or something That that doesn't really happen.
0: Right, yeah, that's a very good point. It's more like a data transfer object than an actual kind of view model or something. And another point there, which I think is, is an important one to bring up is... If you have that optional that we discussed, like the the charging case optional, you probably don't want to pass your entire device model to any kind of code that requires the charging case. You probably then want to transform it into something like a view model or something that has the charging case as a non-nil property, because uh, otherwise you end up in the same typecasting, but in this case, uh, if let unwrapping situation, and then you get more to that non-optional optional optional problem that that I talked about earlier, where you know, your code requires a charging case, but it has to constantly do if let charging case, if let charging case. And what do you do in the else there, right? Like what do you do in the case it's nil? It should never happen. So you can just put a fatal error or something there, but then your code becomes really messy and and hard to kind of parse mentally. So then I would say, you know, it's better to do that unwrapping once and then create some other model that is specific to charging case specific UIs or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and the way I notice that in when I'm working is usually when I get to some piece of code and, and I'm thinking like, oh, by this point this should never be new. And if that's the case then it's time to, to rethink things. And like I mentioned, you can Go all the way back in the stack and and realize that maybe that property shouldn't have been nil to begin with, or maybe in that context that you're working on right now it shouldn't be so maybe you should encapsulate it in something else and not even get it let it let your code get to that point if the property is nil like use the you can also uh, think about this with the the lock and key uh scenario that you mentioned in one of your articles as well like. If mm-hmm. this UI requires a charging case, then it shouldn't be possible to for your code to get here without a charging case. So you should think about that before you get here.
0: Yeah, exactly. like think of it as a locked door and you need the the key to open the lock right yeah, exactly You shouldn't be able to go past the lock door without this data that is required for all the code that's behind the locked door. Perfect. Awesome. So that was a really unexpected fun little mini deep dive into both branching and and also kind of some architecture stuff as well. It's always so much fun when we can use our current work to kind of jump into these more technical discussions. That's something that we really, really enjoy doing and we hope you enjoy listening to it too. Uh, But now, let's talk about some news that have happened, or we have one news item that we want to talk about, whether Netflix is getting into gaming. Uh, But before we get into that, let's take a very quick break to thank this episode's sponsor. Sponsor. This week's episode of Stacktrace is brought to you by our good friends at Pillow, the app that can help you become more aware of your sleep patterns and ultimately help you improve your sleep quality. Go to Pillow.app to learn more and to download the app for free. So how does Pillow work? Well, it's actually really simple. All that you have to do is to wear your Apple Watch while you sleep. Pillow will automatically track and analyze your sleep and will give you a full report when you wake up in the morning. And if you want to use Pillow with just your iPhone or iPad, then you can do that too. You just have to press a single button in the app when you're going to sleep, and that's it. But if you do have an Apple Watch, then you can also get important information about your heart rate, including trends, variability, any heart rate dips that might occur, blood oxygen levels, and so on, for each sleep session. You can even have Pillow automatically record sounds, like sleep talking, sleep apnea, snoring, or other noises that might be affecting your sleep, and a lot of users have been quite surprised by the results. Another valuable aspect of Pillow is that it can help you make more informed decisions of how to improve your overall sleep. Pillow comes with a dedicated section where you can discover trends, you can get personalized insights, sleep tips, and easily compare your sleep metrics with things like your weight, steps you've taken, caffeine consumption, and other health metrics. But that's not all, because Pillow can also help you wind down and relax before you even start sleeping. The app comes with an expanding collection of sleep aid sounds, guided meditations, bedtime stories, and music that was specifically designed for sleeping. And last but not least, Pillow is also very privacy-minded. All of your sleep and audio data is fully encrypted and stored on your device and in your iCloud storage account using end-to-end encryption. You don't even need to register or create an account to use Pillow, you can use it completely anonymously and it doesn't collect or send your personal data anywhere else. So get Pillow for free from the App Store today and it comes with a great set of features that you can use for free every single day or night. (laughs) If you want to try Pillow's premium features, then there's also an option to start a free 7-day trial for that as well. Just visit Pillow.app to get started. Once again, that's Pillow.app to check out Pillow and to get the app for free. Thanks a lot to Pillow for sponsoring this episode of Stacktrace. All right, Rambo. So there has been quite a lot of gaming-related news lately, which uh, I am personally really happy about. Oh, of course, <laughs> because you are. I'm a, because I'm a gamer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this time, our friend Mark German has been uh, also getting into the game industry a little bit here, and he had a report that Netflix plans to, at some point in the future, offer video games as part of their overall subscription service. And then Netflix, they um, released their Q2 earnings report where they said, and I'm going to quote here from the report, very professional, (laughs) where they said, We view gaming as another new content category for us, similar to our expansion into original films, animation, and unscripted TV. Games will be included in members' Netflix subscription at no additional cost, similar to films and series. Initially, we'll be primarily focused on games for mobile devices." So there we have it. It seems definitely that Netflix is going to get into games somehow, but of course they haven't really announced anything specific like what games they will have, how they will get to users, how users will play them and so on. So this gives us a lot of room for fun speculation. So Rambo, I want to start by asking you, uh, when you heard this news, uh, what was your initial kind of thoughts? So,
1: my initial reaction was the same that I've been having for for similar news, not related to gaming necessarily, but I I just miss the time when companies were more worried about providing a great experience to people and not trying to get the most eyeballs possible. Uh, And and that's what it feels like to me Netflix is trying to do here. Uh, To me, it looks like, oh, people are not using the Netflix app enough. Let's put more stuff into it to, like, oh, people are not, like, doing like, they're uh, queuing up for something and they're looking at their mobile device, they're browsing Instagram or TikTok, uh, how about we make them browse Netflix instead? Like, it this really looks to me like something where they want to get more eyeballs and they are trying to figure out a way to do that. And not that they genuinely want to get into the gaming space to to offer a great experience to users. But what do you think?
0: So I think it all depends on what kind of games that this refers to and what they will launch. And probably they will have different kinds of games, just like how they have different kinds of movies and TV shows, right? Yep. But, you know, when you look at games, the range is really large, right? Like, it ranges from board game-like like games, like Solitaire or Chess or something, to these more casual games like, you know, Angry Birds or Cut the Rope or something like this, to like these very intense, narrative-driven, um, immersive games like you see on PlayStation or Xbox and so on. And there's like a whole range in between, right? So there are so many different games. And You know, you could look at it like you just mentioned there, and I've heard this take from other people as well, that it's all about like getting Netflix into more situations in people's lives, right? Like when you would open up an app to play a game for five or 10 minutes, then you would instead open up Netflix and play that game there. And sure, like if, if that's indeed what they're going for here, then that take, I think, could be warranted that that's the motivation behind this. But if you instead look at it like broadening that spectrum even further to say that, okay, you have different kinds of games and they all exist on some kind of spectrum or grid or however you want to model it, like with all these different genres and and types of games, you also have some kind of spectrum and relation between games and movies. And that line, I feel like, is getting more and more blurred, where I play a lot of games now these days that have incredible graphics and I would say are you know, narratively and and with the voice acting and with the script and the writing and everything, it's, like, movie level. Like, it's incredibly good quality. And, you know, coming from the other direction as well, if you look at something like a superhero movie or a movie with lots of visual effects, like, that's getting closer and closer to a game in terms of how it looks and feels. So I feel like Netflix, what they might be going for here, if you have a more charitable look at this, then... We could imagine Netflix going at this to say, okay, we want to be there in the middle. We want to be where movies and games meet and create some really cool, like very narrative-focused, like movie TV-like games that kind of tie into the rest of our content. Kind of like a continuation of this um, Bandersnatch that they did, right? Mm -hmm. Which was kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure movie, uh, but like more like a game like that. So it all depends for me on what uh, type of games are they looking to create?
1: Yeah, the thing that that killed that idea for me was the focus on mobile devices. Uh, And I mean, I'm a developer, I think mobile devices are great, but I don't think they're the best vehicle for deep narrative-driven games. Like, it's probably more towards casual gaming, like you mentioned, so... I mean, I could totally see them doing amazing stuff for the TV and for like some VR stuff in the future. But they specifically mentioned starting out on mobile, so I don't see how they could pull off like a Detroit Become Human on on an iPhone that's immersive and that people will play while out and about.
0: Well, if you think about it, so so why are they targeting mobile? It could be definitely uh, what you're saying because they want to create more casual games. It could simply be because it's the only platform that they could really write something like this for. Because if you think about it, if they wanted to create a game for the TV, how would they run that? Like, unless we're talking about cloud streaming here, which I don't think it's necessarily the case. Like, I think a lot of people, when analyzing this news, have jumped to the conclusion that this will be cloud streaming, similar to the Xbox cloud service and Google Stadia and things like that. Maybe it will be, but I don't think it necessarily has to be that. Uh, But regardless, like, will this run on the TV, like on my LG TV, for example? Will it run like as an app, like as a Netflix app? That I'm not sure if that would be powerful enough for a game. And, you know, similarly, would they create this for like Xbox or PlayStation? Probably not. So since they don't have a box, like, they're not going to ship a console, I don't think then it makes sense to do it on mobile, because I guess the other option would be PC, but mobile, I guess, it's a much larger addressable market, and then, you know, they have this app where they could actually implement the game.
1: Yeah, but then there's a mismatch between the type of content that you mentioned would be great and the medium where it will be played at. At least to me, like, maybe I'm old... And I don't see (laughs) how an experience on a mobile device can be immersive and things like that. But I don't know. It seems to me like there's a mismatch between... The content you mentioned uh, and the type of content you mentioned and the mobile space, but maybe,
0: maybe I'm old, like I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I- I'm all- only speculating here, right? And maybe Both I'm just looking are. at this. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'm just looking at this with like super optimism, <laughs> right? And it's like it's gonna turn out that the games are just like these match three games, you know, with you know the <laughs> slot machine mechanics. <laughs> maybe with like, ads I don't know in between. <laughs> yeah, although they did say no ads, which I ah, think is. Okay is is great like i'm i'm happy about that 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 is a good sign anyway um so i think you're right in a way like when you think about very immersive games you don't jump to think about iphone games right like at least not in the majority there are a lot of like narrative games and and more like quote unquote movie like games on ios as well and more of them are coming out but the, the games we see that are successful and and that we associate with mobile gaming are are not that primarily, right? They're more these casual games that we talked about. But if you think about it, like do people watch Netflix currently on their phone? Probably, right? True. Like I don't watch a ton of Netflix on my phone. I mostly watch it on either my iPad or on the TV, but I, I I'm sure that a lot of people watch TV shows and movies on their phone. And then why couldn't they play a narrative immersive game on their phone as well like what's the difference yeah that's a good point um that doesn't
1: address like if i am willing to like lay down or something or sit down and look at my phone screen for like an hour or something i already have the netflix netflix catalog so i guess this makes sense if what they want is to attract an audience that they're not attracting right now which is people are spending time playing games and they could be spending that time on Netflix, but not out and about like I I thought about. Maybe like at their home or something and and with a a more immersive experience, at least as much as you can do that on a mobile device. Uh, But yeah, like I mentioned, we're both speculating, so we, we don't know what this is going to look like, but I guess it could be both.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and probably it will be, you know, Netflix has already so many different kinds of TV shows and and content in general, right? So if you want something more lightweight, like I guess the TV equivalent of a casual game would be something like, you know, a reality show or, or a humor show or a comedy or something like that, right? Compared to something like very in-depth, like a, a movie or something like that, where you're uh, watching it in a different way, right? And it's not to say that one is better than the other. I watch all kinds of content myself. I play all sorts of games myself. Yesterday, I was playing both Tetris and a very, very, like, game where I'm really, really into it, like a role-playing game. So I play, I, I play and watch all sorts of things myself. I don't think one is better than the other, but I think it's interesting to think about these things. And one thing they've said explicitly is they wanted to leverage their existing IP. And what that makes me think of is something like Stranger Things, for example, right? Like imagine like a, a Stranger Things sort of uh, game, which is perhaps not like a first-person shooter, but more like you know a narrative-driven game where you are maybe like making different choices and you're walking around in a Stranger Things world, and it's more kind of a little bit slower paced. It's more suitable for that kind of mobile uh, experience rather than being something you play like with a controller, which is super fast-paced. Which they might also get into, but. The way I think about these things, it seems more to be those sorts of games or more casual games, but I hope it's more kind of the narrative-driven games that will kind of tie together with the rest of the Netflix content.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Another aspect of this that that came to mind uh, is increasing the perceived value of a Netflix subscription. Uh, I don't know how it is uh, all over the world, but at least here in Brazil, I've been... Seeing more and more people saying that they are canceling their Netflix subscription because it's gotten like really expensive here. Uh, And I'm going to say the price, and it might not sound expensive, but for the reality of the country, that's a lot of money. Uh, So, the Netflix subscription where you get like 4K streaming and basically the same features you get from Apple TV uh, Plus, it costs the equivalent to about 11 US dollars here and uh, monthly and the apple tv plus subscription is just two dollars uh so actually a little under but about two dollars uh so when you compare the the pricing you can see that that like netflix is a lot more expensive of course it has a lot more content because they have a lot of catalog but uh, people are maybe are not seeing the value in in paying all of that money monthly to like watch one or two movies, or like to watch Stranger Things when the new season comes out.
0: Right, exactly. Yeah, I think that could definitely be part of the strategy to to increase the value. Uh, but also to your earlier point as well, to it could either be to bring in people who perhaps doesn't watch a lot of Netflix but likes to play games, or it could also be what I mentioned earlier: pe- people who really like some of the content that is on Netflix and they would like to quote-unquote, engage with it further, right? (laughs) Like, now it really sounds like a press release or something, right? But you know what I mean. Like, if you're really into Stranger Things and you want just as much Stranger Things as you can get, and there's a really cool Netflix-produced Stranger Things game, then you might be into that as well, right? So it could be all of those things. Um, but going away from the kind of strategic, you know, what will they do, the content and so on, which is really interesting to speculate about, but this is Stack Trace. So we also need to talk <laughs> about the technical aspect. And uh, how do we think that Netflix might then distribute these games? Do we think it might be something like cloud streaming, like I mentioned earlier? Or could it be something where, you know, it runs locally? Would it be in the Netflix app? Would it be a separate app? Would it be a series of separate apps? Uh, what do you think? I think this will be another straw
1: on the back of the antitrust camel. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right, yeah.
1: Because uh, unless they are doing something behind the scenes with Apple that they that we don't know about, uh, I think, yeah, Apple will not be happy if they just start distributing games within the Netflix app without all of the in-app purchase stuff. Uh, so the way I could see this working for them is if they have been secretly working with Apple on getting in that purchase uh, back into Netflix or into Netflix I don't know if they've ever had it um, so that's the way I could see this uh, working out for them I, I I don't see Apple just allowing Netflix to do basically what Microsoft wanted to do and they could not do so I wonder if maybe the solution for Netflix will be the browser, like Microsoft did.
0: Yeah, exactly, like the Xbox cloud gaming is running on the browser like we talked about on a few episodes ago. But this is where it gets really interesting, also from a technical perspective, is, you know, as far as I can tell, like like I mentioned before, I don't think they've mentioned that this will be cloud streamed games. I think, again, people are jumping to that assumption because Netflix is all about cloud streaming, But what if these games are not streamed from the cloud? What if they're running locally? Has there been any situation yet where Apple has said you can't put like a collection of locally running games in one application? I know they say that you can't have an app that looks like an app store or something, but is there any rule against having like mini-games or something bundled in an existing application because what both Microsoft and Facebook and, and all these other companies that have been wanting to launch gaming services and have run into problems with Apple have tried to do is cloud-streamed games, right? Where you just open up the app and it streams it from the cloud somewhere and that's something Apple have taken issue with. But what if the games would be running locally? Do you think that might make a difference? I don't think
1: the issue Apple had was the fact that the games were being streamed. The issue they had is that and this is actually a, a written rule in the app review guidelines, is that they would have an app that would basically act as an app store. Uh, so I, I I think that's where the issue shows up. And I guess maybe you could argue that given that Netflix charges a subscription already and they don't offer that subscription within the app in any way, and then Apple is fine with that, as long as like they The only way I think you can know about how to subscribe from within the Netflix app is to like call a support number or something because even if they link to the website, (laughs) Apple would have an issue with that. Uh, So I guess given that Apple is fine with that and you can stream movies and things like that on Netflix just fine, maybe they would not find an issue with the game thing. But the problem is that Apple has this very weird distinction between... Content and executable code, basically, uh, which it, it like makes no sense because when I open a movie in the Netflix app, that movie is making my device run code. Like, even though it's not the code itself, it, it it is a bunch of bytes coming from the web that's making my device run code. So I I don't see why Apple sees that distinction, but. I don't know this does just, just sounds like the type of thing Apple would have an issue with, but I, <laughs> yeah, I, that's a good way of putting it. I, I don't I, I don't remember seeing Netflix being particularly participant in the whole antitrust stuff. Did they ever like say anything about it? I, I don't remember Netflix being like one of the the big companies that were going against Apple, like uh, Facebook or, or Spotify. Um, so I don't know if they maybe have some special arrangement behind the scenes that's going on, but I guess we'll know soon enough.
0: Yeah, and and to your earlier point there around like that they allow movies and they don't allow games, it gets even more funny when you think about how cloud gaming works, where if you're watching a movie, streamed movie, you are getting a video stream from the internet and you're sending commands back around play, pause, forward, and so on. When you're playing a, a game that's running in the cloud, you get a video stream back and you send commands like A, B, L, R... control stick back to the cloud so it's the same thing (laughs) exactly (laughs) so it's yeah it's just a distinction in terms of the content and and i really hope personally and also for apple's sake and all this antitrust stuff i really hope that apple will change their mind about this i feel like this whole um, ban against this cloud gaming uh, is is kind of getting to a ridiculous point but it could also be something where Netflix, to your point, haven't really been very vocal. I haven't really gotten that impression either. But what if this is like a little bit like poking the bear kind of situation, (laughs) right? What if they, I mean, they know that Apple is not gonna ban Netflix, right? Like Netflix is such an important application. What if they are like, you know, introducing games now to kind of see how far they can push that? I I mean, that would be a kind of epic games kind of strategy, right? Like see how far we can push things, but I don't know, like this is very interesting.
1: Yeah, it's the thing we mentioned before in, in other cases. Like, imagine if Netflix was not on, on Apple's platforms. I I think that would be really bad for Apple. Like, it would it would be terrible for Netflix as well, but really bad for Apple. Like, you you buy an iPhone and you can't watch Netflix on it, or you, or you can only watch it on the browser. Like, I think yeah, uh, it's interesting to to see where this goes and. If it is the case, like you mentioned that they're poking the baron and seeing uh, how far they can poke until Apple does something
0: yeah it's it's a really interesting kind of power play going on between all of these companies, and you know we have Microsoft and Facebook already involved in this, and they are very big companies too, and you know it's it's just interesting to see how this will end up, both for Apple and for you know the whole industry, definitely. Cool, so we'll definitely be returning to this topic, I think. It's uh, both concerns like the App Store, it's technical, I love games, I, I know that you're a fan of, of some games, and, and we're, of course, fans of Netflix and so on, so it is a very interesting topic for all those reasons. Uh, but now let's round off this episode with uh, Ask Stack Trace, which is, of course, our segment where you, dear listeners, get to ask us any questions you want about technology or or anything else, and you can always tweet with the hashtag Ask Trace or email us at stacktrace at 9 to maccom and we will get your question and we will answer it on a future episode. And our question for this week's episode comes from Abel. And Abel asks, I recently joined a company with an undocumented code base. What are some tips and tricks that you would recommend on getting familiar with the code base as fast as possible? So this very much relates to our discussion that we had last week around you know me getting to work on some client projects that have existing code bases and I needed to kind of orient myself and find a good way to kind of add that feature to an existing code base. So this is a little bit different in that. Abel is going to work for this company and needs to uh, get familiar with the kind of overall code base here. So do you have any tips or tricks here for Abel, Mr. Rambo?
1: Well, if you're working for uh, the company and you've actually joined the company, first of all, it's uh, kind of their responsibility to give you whatever help you need in order to, to get familiar with the code base. And that might mean like uh, working pair programming with someone who's already familiar with the code base. And of course, you should be able to rely on colleagues in, in order to get information about the code base. I'm assuming that you you joined the company and you joined the team who's been working on the code base for a while. If you you joined the company and they like had this code base in, in the closet somewhere and, and here it is, <laughs> then it's a, a different story. But I, I assume you're probably working with colleagues and, and you have a team where you can rely on, on your colleagues to get familiar. So what what we did uh, at the Jobby Job is with a new person, we always gave them a walkthrough of uh, the the product, basically. And I think uh, focusing on the code base first might not be the right way to go about this. You first need to familiarize yourself with the product. So mm-hmm. assuming this is an app, you, you need to actually use the app and basically get to know every single corner of the app even the corners that most people never go to like the little help icon in the corner that opens up the this little help desk system or something like that like get familiar with the product and and uh, we did that at the job job by doing like a walkthrough with the the new uh, person who was joining the team and after you're familiar with the product itself, Getting to know the code base is going to be easier, but there as well, I suggest having a walkthrough with someone who's already familiar with the code base who can show you around, basically, like. kind of like when you show someone around your place like oh this is the master suite this is the bathroom Mm -hmm. this is the little closet where we put all of the stuff
0: we don't use anymore (laughs) that's the utilities folder in xcode project (laughs) exactly Uh, code base
1: is a a lot like that so uh, i would say basically have someone walk you through it uh, to begin with and then after you you get a, a little bit of insight into where things are and and how the product works, then starts working basically like get get some tickets, get some bug fixes to do, and you will get familiar with the code base by messing around with it. And I still remember when I first joined uh, the the job job back in 2017, and I I was assigned a few bug fixes. I was basically like running the app from Xcode, setting breakpoints, and like tapping buttons on screen to find like where does this go and which view controller is this. Uh, and that's basically how you have to do it. And I would say it's it's extremely rare that you'll find a code base that's gonna be documented to an extent where you can like read documentation and understand the entire code base. That's just not possible.
0: Yeah, it, that would only be the case, I think, if you're going to work on some kind of SDK or framework or something where, you know, there's some kind of public-facing documentation. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very rare that even large companies have, like, elaborate documentation about internal code uh, changes or internal code structure like because that just changes so rapidly that keeping that documentation all up to date is really difficult you even see this challenge when people create design systems and you know they create these beautiful websites for example internally with all the components and everything looks so great and then 3 months later the design system is out of date <laughs> because you know I, you know the design changed or was tweaked in some way and and that's not to say that you should never write documentation it's just a comment on the kind of Uh, reality of most companies, right? Like, that's just, when you're joining a new company, that's usually how it is. So I agree with you. I think approaching a new code base from kind of the top down is definitely my preferred approach as well. Like, I like to start with whatever I'm interacting with to trigger the code. So if we're talking about an app, that would be the UI. If we're talking about some kind of server application, it would be the website or the server endpoints or something like that that I am calling to see what code is triggered. And if we're talking about something like a framework, then the tests could be like a, a good starting point or you know, an, a test application that uses the framework. So it all depends on what's your entry point into this code base. I would suggest starting there. And I do the same thing as you. I try to get a good structure of the app itself, if we're talking about an app now, uh, the flows and so on. And we have to remember that you know most people, the vast majority of developers, don't just like put their files randomly in Xcode. Like they have some kind of structure. So even though that structure, like I mentioned on the previous episode, might initially seem really strange to you because you haven't seen it before, and it might not be a structure that you would have chosen if you wrote this, it's there's still some structure there. I can almost guarantee it. It might be messy. It might have gone through a lot of iterations, but. Someone initially started this project with some form of structure. It wasn't just random. So it's all about finding that structure. And you can use the UI for that. You can set breakpoints. And then try to map like all these screens and all these flows and, and all, all these buttons and so on, all this UI. Where in the code is that defined? And how does the UI connect to the code? And then after a little while some kind of pattern will probably start to emerge. Like, okay, here's this folder, it contains these features, and here's these view controllers and these views, here's this thing and that thing, and it connects this way. And depending on what pattern that is being used, uh, if there's some kind of central navigation system, that could be good to look at, because then, you know, if you have some kind of router or something like that, you might be able to see all the different paths that the user can go through but even if there isn't something like that you could step through the view controllers and find like which view controller connects where or if there's a storyboard you might be able to use that so finding that kind of high level structure i think is super important before you start diving into like the code level details because diving into those details will be so much easier once you have that map in front of you that you know which part of the code connects to which other parts yeah i think that that's a good approach and then I would just reiterate what I said last time, which is, and, and it ties back to what I just said there as well, that don't assume that the code base was written with no structure or that the people who wrote it before you uh, just made a series of bad decisions, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, sometimes that's the case. Sometimes a code base has gone really, you know, poorly maintained for a while, and that's unfortunate. But a lot of the times, there is a good structure. There is... Um, you know, s- system that you can discover, you just need to discover it. And to your point, Rambo, the best way I think to discover that is to ha- have someone guide you through it and have you, you know, walk you through the, the code base, especially if it's not just like a client project that you're going to work on for a couple of weeks, but something where you're going to work potentially for years, definitely the company should be willing to invest that time to uh, teach you all of the code base and how it works and how the product works also. So... Getting that help from some people who are already there, I think, also is really, really useful. Yeah, and if and
1: for a complex code base, you're not gonna familiarize yourself with the entire code base in any reasonable amount of time. Like it's gonna probably take over a year in order for you to get completely familiarized. And and by that I mean not that you'll know everything. Uh, from memory, but that you at least know where everything is and and, and how things plug into each other. And, and and depending on how big the code base is, can really take a long time. So familiarize yourself first with whatever it is that you're going to be working on. And as time goes by and you get assigned more tickets and, and, and develop more things, you're going to naturally find the places uh, of the code base that you're not that familiar with.
0: Yeah, absolutely, that's a very good tip. And you can also discover some of this stuff by just hacking around with the code base, right? Like change some title somewhere, right? Like I sometimes go and I change like label text to like test, test two, or here, here's this button, you know? And then I, yeah. I discover like where in the UI is that and so on. So you can just play around with the code base for a little bit and see how that would work. And definitely don't fi- feel any pressure to learn everything at once because most of these things I think are easier to learn organically as you implement new features And just as an example, when I was working at Spotify, I worked there for almost four years, and I think I quote unquote learned like a fraction of the code base, right? Like I definitely did not know the entire code base, even though I worked there for so long and I worked on very kind of company-wide tools and frameworks and and technologies, it was just impossible to know the entire code base because it was so large. Yeah, that definitely happens. Cool. So thanks a lot for that question, Abel. I hope our answers were useful to both you and to all of our other wonderful listeners. And once again, to remind everybody, you can always ask us a question either by tweeting with the hashtag AskStackTrace or by sending us an email to stacktrace at 9 to maccom And I want to put out like a little bit of a call for questions here also. Like if you have a question, please send us your questions because now we are kind of getting to the end of the a uh, big batch of questions we got a few months ago so we need a new batch so uh, <laughs> if you have any question please send it along uh, we really really appreciate it uh, but that's it for this episode of stack trace so thanks a lot for listening thanks a lot to pillow for sponsoring this episode and we will talk to you next week so say goodbye mr rambo goodbye So yesterday, I think I experienced the both most well-timed and least well-timed rainfall ever in my life. (laughs) So like I told you, I had been doing some garden work uh, yesterday and I was working all day in the garden. It was actually really fun. Like I really enjoy gardening now. I'm I'm still not good at it at all. I barely know what I'm doing, but I'm figuring things out. And, you know, because, because I'm still very much a beginner everything takes pretty long for me because I have to figure everything out and I don't want to do the wrong thing and ruin my whole garden, right? Yeah. So I was spending the whole day like like cleaning out like dead grass and sowing some new grass and, you know, all that stuff that goes into it. Like I wanted to really improve my grass. And of course, the final part of doing any kind of gardening work, more or less, is watering. You have Mm -hmm. to water your new grass or your new plants or whatever. And you also don't want to overwater, so if there's a chance of rain, then you don't want to apply artificial watering, right? Yeah. I mean, not just because it will probably ruin your new things that you planted, but also because you want to be environmentally friendly, right? You don't want to waste water if you don't have to. Yeah. If, if, the, if the nature can't take care of the watering, then that's better. Uh, so I was really hoping for rain, and I was like, okay, let's hope that there will be some rain tonight. Yeah. Uh, That would be amazing because then I don't have to water myself and it would be better for, you know, everything. Uh, And then I thought, well, I will just go for a walk with my dog and then maybe it will rain afterwards. Mm. So I was walking out and it was like sunny skies, very beautiful weather, and I had a day off. So I thought, you know, I will walk pretty far with my dog, like go for a long walk with her, you know, for both her sake and mine, get some exercise, you know. I really like to do that. So we walked like pretty far away, like two, three kilometers away from our house and then of course it starts to rain Uh. (laughs) (laughs) and in the beginning i was like oh this is pretty nice because i thought about my grass and i was like yes the 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 grass is going to get water it's going to be amazing and it was just raining a little bit so i didn't really care you know i can just sneak under some trees or something like try to avoid the rain as much as possible but it was fine but then like two or three minutes later, it just started pouring down, like, you know, <laughs> the sky is opening. <laughs> and at that point, I wasn't so happy anymore. And that that's when it turned from the most well-timed rain to the least well-timed rain ever, uh, yeah. where I was very far away. I didn't have any rain clothes or anything like that. And I, of course, had my iPhone and AirPods and everything. And I was really worried that, you know, they will get water damaged or, I you know, I will get really cold and and wet and I did get very cold and wet but fortunately I managed to find some shelter and my iPhone and AirPods are all fine my dog is fine everybody's happy my grass is happy so the story had a good ending I mean the dog probably loved it Actually, my dog hates rain. Oh, she really hates rain. Like when I go out with her, when it's raining outside, I will go outside the apartment, and then she will just stand in the doorway, and she will just refuse to leave. <laughs> nope, <laughs> nope, not doing that. Nice.
1: Yeah, it happens sometimes. Um, I, I think it's it's common here because uh, since it's an island, you get these very unexpected changes in temperature and weather and things like that like just today I woke up and it's been dark the whole day basically because there's some rain coming and uh, it was quite warm yesterday it was like 25 degrees um, and that's not something you'd expect this time of year because we're in winter and now there are news that's uh, like the Worst cold ever is coming to the south of Brazil, and the coldest temperatures in of the century. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll have to deal with that because, it, it, like, it's one thing to be cold or to be warm, but the thing that happens here is is that it changes so dramatically, so quickly. Like mm-hmm. yesterday yeah. was 25. And as we're recording, I'm looking at the temperature outside right now, and it's 18, and it's dropping. So it's probably going to go down to, like, I don't know, 14 or something tonight. Yeah. It's a, uh, and that's not the biggest change I've seen within 24 hours. So you've you got to be prepared.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's interesting that different places have more kind of volatile weather, right? Like mm-hmm. when I was living in Krakow, it was... Uh, also, it could go dramatically uh, from cold weather to hot weather and vice versa. Like, I remember there was one week in the spring where it w- was minus degrees in the beginning of the week and then like plus 20 at the end of the week. Ugh. Like that was a crazy transition. It was basically going from wearing a winter jacket and gloves and a hat to to wearing shorts and t shirt.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I I clearly remember when I was going, still going to school, and I I studied in the morning, so I left my home at like seven a.m. or something to go to school, and I I, I went by foot because it was fairly close. And I would have to, to like, wear a jacket and, and sometimes even gloves and things like that. Of course, the tolerance here is, is lower than <laughs> in, in uh, Europe and other places where it's uh, more common to have, like, minus uh, temperature and things like that. But yeah, we, we we did that. And then at, like, 11 a.m. or something, it would be, like, 27 degrees. And And I don't remember, like, what the temperature would be in the morning, but it would be, like, 15 probably which is like for us it's quite cold and when you have 15 all the way up to 27 in a single day it's not nice
0: (laughs) yeah no i would even consider that you know very big a very very big change even by my standards like by you know northern europe standards uh but yeah I, i totally get it that you know when you have a smaller span of of temperature that you're operating in then a smaller change feels larger Mm -hmm. than it would be for me for example right like you know here it's very common that it goes up and down like between five and ten degrees between different days it's it's kind of common because you know the temperature variation is a little bit higher but it's uh yeah it's it's interesting how it works that way
1: yeah and our body (laughs) acclimates to to the temperature so if it stays high for a while you kind of get used to it and yeah, of course. Uh, during winter, like yesterday, it was twenty five, and I was like, "Oh my god, it's super hot today!" And I looked at at the thermometer, and it was twenty five. And I'm, oh, okay, that's not too hot, <laughs> uh, because yeah, it can go past thirty here quite easily. So, uh, yeah, you get used to it, and then you get you gotta like reacclimate again. So when it changes too quickly, you don't get a chance to do that, and then you suffer. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's funny because I have the exact same feeling but the reverse where when it's winter but then all of a sudden it becomes a little bit warmer so let's say it's been like minus five and then all of a sudden it's like plus five then it feels super hot <laughs> you know it feels <laughs> like it's it's really going almost summer and then you know of course plus five is not hot at all <laughs> right so that's that's still very cold and then in the summer if it goes down to like 20 then i feel like oh it's getting a little bit cold and chilly so it's yeah you're absolutely right it's it depends on the season whether mm. it's complicated Weather, it depends. (laughs) (laughs) So now we
1: got the weather talk out of the main show, so people are going to be happy with us. Stay tuned
0: for next week for another episode of Weather Talk by Stacktrace.
1: Did you see the new Carrot Weather updates? Uh, They have a new feature where you can record your own ridiculous weather report. And, oh,
0: I saw something about that. That looks so cool. Yeah, it
1: gives you like a, a teleprompter uh, and with what you're supposed to say and it puts like lower thirds on the bottom of the screen with your name and things like that. It's super fun.
0: <laughs> That's super fun. I really need to try that. <laughs>